shiny. Sometimes it gets a little light. No, no I uh, no, it looks good. I have I have beard envy right now. <laughs> trying to catch up to you. Yeah, I don't know, man. I'm only 41, but it looks like I'm like 65 or something. This is. I uh, I like Enjoy. it. I actually I just shaved mine. Actually, uh, it got too uh, warm. Uh, so, <laughs> how's it going, everyone? Today we have an incredible uh, a talk uh, with. Once again, Barry Kirch, the drummer for the Platinum uh, Selling Band, Shine Down, joining us in our resident Viking here at Spirit Talk. And then we're also bringing with us Donnie Dust, a former U.S. Marine, a, I guess I would call a professional caveman, and we'll talk about that. Sure. And uh, just an individual that I'm very interested in learning and talking to, so thank you for both uh, jumping out here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Donnie, before we kind of get into your career, this last year TikTok kind of blew up and I'm not on TikTok. I don't I see the problem is I get these videos sent to me. It uh Barry's in some of these group texts too with our band guys. And well, you watch a video and then you'll you start scrolling down TikTok. Well, three hours later the other night, <laughs> I get to a video of someone going, I see you, and it's like, Hey, could you make a candle? And then you start doing this, yeah. And so I watched you make a candle using a antler and animal fat. And I sat myself, myself watching, I go, this is why social media is awesome. <laughs> sure, for sure. Yeah, you know, TikTok is, um, it's one of those things I had no intentions being part of, but as a, you know, as a, as a, as a parent of a 15 and 12 year old son, whatever social media they're gonna go on, I need to make sure that I'm on there and just, you know, I'm aware of the things that they're looking at and maybe some of those influences. And, you know, as I was on there, I didn't want to be that, you know, 41-year-old creeper, like, looking at all these weird videos and all this jazz. So, you know, he convinced me. He's like, you should throw a couple of your videos on there. And I threw them on there, and people people enjoy them. And I, I keep them real simple. Just kind of here's a skill. This is how I go about doing it. And, you know, learn something from it because that's really what it's about is if we can use a platform like, like TikTok to actually teach folks, then – I think we're hitting the nail on the head. So, yeah, it's it's very fascinating. I know Barry and I always joke about uh, social media in general, how it's a necessary evil, especially if it's used in a good way, getting out a positive message. I know Barry's always pushing for the campaign against negativity and just an overall positive outlook on life. But some of the stuff on there, and I'm glad you brought it up. With children, you do kind of have to protect what's yours, especially in that dark web of just nudity and drug you it's just, it's it's just crazy and it's what's interesting with you is that you have this primitive lifestyle that simplifies everything and so that's why i'm glad again you're on here today appreciate it thank you yeah it's it, it it's a it's a balancing act i find as a parent and similar to you guys you know you have to find that that fine line where you can allow your kids to learn things but you also have to find a way where you can kind of safeguard them because I mean, on some of these platforms, there's nothing but, you know, people slamming beers and just kind of this perverse sort of outlook. And that's what I really try to shield them from. So if I can be part of that solution by creating some some content where, you know, uh, a 15 year old boy to, a, you know, 65 year old man or woman can say, huh, I want to try that. And then it sparks that creativity. And then the next thing you know, they're out in the bush making axes and building shelters and, uh, you know, kind of live in that kind of wild side. So it's it's a balancing act for sure. When the pandemic hit, did that kind of get your juices flowing in terms of, okay, this next year or so is going to be off the grid? Does that help you in a sense? Or are you already prepared to be, if this does happen, or if it happens again, you've already kind of mentally yeah. prepared that? Yeah, so as far as my, my approach when kind of 2020 hit was um, – I wasn't really worried from a kind of a food shelter kind of safety security sort of aspect. I was more worried about kind of the 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 idea of this this virus catching one of my kids or actually impacting me. That was the macro, if you will. And then what uh, the the micros were were all those things that I can easily mitigate and, and and safeguard. So, you know, for me, you know, it's it's again it's a balancing act. But I find myself in a lot of caves, and my sons know where those caves are. And if for whatever reason they weren't with me, you know, we had our own our own emergency evac plans, and it's go where no people are, and you walk out there, and we had signal plans, and I didn't 
we had quite an elaborate system, but they ran through it. I mean, I drag them out to 13,000 feet and say, all right, this is what we got to do. This is how we got to go about doing it. And North South, they're like, yeah, dad, sounds good. We're on board. And, you know, even as a, as a divorced guy, I was like, you can bring your mom. We don't want to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we got to make sure everyone's safe, but you know, it's, um, it's being prepared. And, you know, some of my approaches were just understanding what the environment offers some of the medicinal, uh, medicinal plants, um, understanding how I can go about getting food if there were mass uh, shortages. And it was, it wasn't anything of major alarm. It was just more of a kind of push play. This might be the time to operate. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a way it's maybe not necessarily the way for a lot of people, but I find it to work very, very well for me. Now, Barry, you've also spent more time camping in this downtime with your sure. wife and kid, daughter and stuff. So how has that kind of – how has that been for you guys mentally and physically just kind of getting outside the house? Uh, for me, mentally and physically, and, and I think for the family, it's wonderful. It really helps connect us more. Um, it allows me – my daughter's younger. She's 10, just turned 10 in January, so she's a little younger in, in these things. And also of a, a daughter mentality, she's a little bit more – I guess in a way she's very, <laughs> I don't know how, cause her mother's not this way, but she's very girly, girly and sensitive. And that's just who she is as a person. So, you know, uh, as far as being super gung ho in the woods, she's a lot more cautious, which is probably a good thing in the long run. Um, but getting out with them and, and having this time to do that and really introduce more. So my daughter though, introducing my wife to a lot of these things is fun too, because she's a city girl. She's a South Florida girl. You know, they didn't grow up camping. It wasn't a thing. They're yeah. like, what do you mean? What do you mean? There's bugs out there? Well, yeah, you live in Florida. There's bugs. <laughs> you know, um, so it's been fun to get her into that, and it's it's much less of the primitive style, like like Donnie, you're doing. You know, you're you're in a cave, you're getting your own food, you're flint napping, you're making your own weapons. We're on more of the glamping side of things because that's how I got my wife into it. You know, we have a uh, a nice little airstream that we we camp in, but in that, I'm able to take them out of that environment. And go, okay, we're gonna go catch some fish. So here's how we're gonna do it. Let's go on a hike here. Let's look for, you know, I'm a hunter and I'm a fisherman. So let's go look for signs of wildlife in the woods. And, and what are you going to do if you get lost? And here's how you can mark your trail as you're going into another place. No, just those small little things. And I'm very much a novice probably compared to what you are with not only your military background, but what you've done in the primitive lifestyle, even what you've done, you know, to wise and in your books. But even those small techniques, I love learning from guys like yourself and everybody else that you can learn the small things from and go, oh, I never thought of doing that. Or that's a whole new way of doing that. That's pretty cool. And if I can introduce those to my daughter and she's not spending time looking at, you know, computers and, and, and whatnot, why not? Because I think these arts, and I think both of you would agree, these arts are completely being lost on a generation, if not the past two generations. I didn't grow up with a lot of them. I got to be camping, but it was a very different thing. And I appreciate everything he taught me, but it was more of, okay, we're going to go camping once or twice a year. But then again, he was a busy working father, military guy. He's a retired Air Force. Um, so it was when he had a chance. You know, it wasn't taking it to that other level. And I, I didn't really get super interested it, into it until probably my late 20s when I was like, okay, what's the next level? Aside from going out fishing on the weekend, what else can I do out here to survive? Absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. It really is. That's what I think. Um, I believe more parents should be, you know, kind of doing with their with their families is, you know, starting small, starting with that initial phase of like, hey, let's just go camping. And you know, to be honest with that, I do that with with my sons. Yeah, they can walk miles and do all sorts of things, but it's like, let's just go camping. Let's set up a tent. Let's catch some fish. Let's just kind of commune around the campfire. And yeah. that's where little opportunities to punch out and do some skills. Like, hey, what happens? Play those sort of scenarios. But that's that's what's kind of vacant in a lot of uh, people these days is they are, I don't want to say they're afraid of the woods, but they, they have a, a certain apprehension about going out there, whether it's cold or it's the weather or, you know, predatory animals, something to that extent. But um, I think that's a solid approach. I mean, people could take a good look at that and say, you know what, we need to, we need to start working that as well. I think the woods can become scary. And with, uh, especially with, you know, anything sensationalized on TV now, it's all there, you know, Oh, that person went in the woods and all of a sudden there's 20 bear. I've never seen 20 bear in my life. You know? um, yeah, they're there. Take your precautions. And I'm not telling anybody out there that ends up watching this. Don't, be, uh, don't take precautions when you're out in the wild. You can get hurt very easily. But no more. I, I'm more scared of getting in a car than going in the woods by any means. Absolutely. 
One of the interesting things, I, I, I think his name was uh, Christopher McCandles, the Into the Wild story. Yeah, yeah. When, he, when that guy goes into the Alaskan uh, wilderness. And I think part of the, when I first heard that story and watched the movie and read parts of his, like the books of his parents, I'm like, they brought like a kind of a sexiness. I think people bought into the sexiness of anyone who went out to the wild, right? Like, but, and so I, you, look, you step back and you're kind of like, you step uh, half a mile off the interstate in Alaska, you're in no man's land. And I don't think people realize that, yeah, these shows, Naked and Afraid, and I'm good friends with E.J. Steiner, and I know all these people. They're, it's great, but I don't think people realize that what you do, Donnie and stuff, like this is actual life or death. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, it, it's fascinating. Oh, you know, it's, it's absolutely 100% real. And I think it comes with time, effort, and energy, as well as knowledge, skills, and abilities. Um, it, it, it requires a person to build their wilderness self-reliance. And wilderness in the macro term, jungle, you know, the Arctic, whatever the case may be. But your own personal self-reliance out in the bush is really what people need to understand and really aim to kind of build upon. It's, it's understanding that, you know, if you take the McCandless story, he was a novice outdoorsman, burned all this stuff and kind of went on an adventure, but it was a handful of berries that wound up getting him at the very end. Um, it's those sort of things that if you have that self-reliance, you can acknowledge those immediate threats and hazards. So we talk about bears. Well, there's bears all over, but I know I'm not going to go when the salmon are spawning or the bears are feeding to go camping with my family. So understanding the rut when it's elk season or when it's the rut for moose those are those things that people need to have that kind of knowledge of. And then that builds into their reliance into the outdoors, their own self-reliance, understanding that, you know, I've mitigated certain risks potentially, and now I can go ahead and kind of enjoy, you know, the serenity of the outdoors camping with family or going for a hike. But, you know, when we overlook those things and we don't, we don't factor in a lot of those other variables in the, in the bush, that's when those accidents happen. And, um, you know, they can be deadly at times for sure. Yeah. Is it weird for you, Donnie, when you have to go to a speaking engagement, stay at a hotel? Like, do you feel more comfortable in a hotel, what people would consider a normal uh, environment, as opposed to in your in a cave or outside of the wilderness? Yeah, you know, um, I think if I'm with my my sons and we're traveling through an area or something to that extent, there, there's a luxury to it, and it affords certain kind of you know ease of access, if you will. But I typically avoid them at all costs. Um, you know, it's it's like I'll put it to like this: I don't own a bed. I've been sleeping on the floor for for years. Um, <laughs> it's just I know, all <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, it's one of those things where you know you crawl into a bed; it just feels really familiar, comfortable, especially in a hotel. So for me, I I don't like to go to those places. I'll utilize them if it requires. Um, that sort of, you know, outcome. But the reality is I'd rather stay out in the bush and feel totally comfortable in the bush, sleeping, you know, in a pile of leaves, looking up at the stars, knowing that it is, or there are bear out there, there's mountain lions, whatever the case may be. But uh, again, it comes into, I always call, when I talk with a lot of students, I say there's a pattern of life to the natural world. When we first walk into it, the pattern of life that already exists we can do a couple things. We can try to become part of it, or we can try to battle it the entire time. And once you become part of that pattern of life, and you gentlemen have all camped before, you start to hear things. You start to smell things. You start to observe the actual true nature and its patterns and how you're working within it. And then when there's interruptions in those patterns, that's when we can quickly identify, you know, there's something over to my left, or there's some sort of disturbance, you know, you know, a click and a half away because crows are flying up and they're flying irregular. Once we understand that pattern of life in the natural world and we become part of it, it's very easy to live in it. It's, it's, it's extreme. It's just like if you were at your house or you were walking into a hotel to check in, you get your room key and you know exactly what you're doing. There's a pattern of life to everything. The natural world has that pattern of life and you got to become part of it to ultimately thrive in it. Now, is it beneficial to have, say, something happen where you kind of shake up that pattern? to see how well you are actually in that world you're living in is like, is yeah. that something that's absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of survival scenarios, about 99% of them were self-induced. So people do exactly that. They, they, they take, you know, maybe a knife and a few items and they go put themselves in that situation 
to test their abilities and kind of test their overall you know, knowledge and skills. So there is a benefit to that. And that's more like training, just like the military trains, the police trains, musicians, poets, all, everyone trains in a certain way. That's an aspect of training. It's, it's at a certain point, when does the training become real? But it's, it's, it's hard to actually put yourself in a real survival scenario because you are, you are doing it. So if you go out and you're, you're lost, that's real. Um, if you're driving down the interstate and there's no one else on the interstate and it's super remote, you blow out a tire, that's a real scenario. So there's a lot of real things that can happen, but in that true wilderness fashion, I don't want to say that they're, they're far and few between, but there's not as many as we think. So for some of us, it kind of transitions into more of the living in that situation, living in that environment. And that's kind of where I come into that play. Now, is this now, something, sorry, John, uh, I'm curious, did you grow up doing these primitive things? Was it a family thing? And that's what got you into the military. And then after the military, you just made, this is going to be what I do. Or is it kind of something that evolved over time? Yeah. So, you know, I grew up, I grew up in Colorado in an area when there was like 50 homes. And it was a time when you could leave the house, you could steal some vegetables from the neighbor's garden, go fishing and camping and just like do your thing. Um, and that's, you know, definitely different than now. So growing up in that kind of situation and kind of just always exploring and being a curious kid. Um, yeah, I was always exposed to fishing. My father took me fishing. I went hunting with my uncles and I'd go to my uncle's house in Michigan. He'd slide the kayak out the back and say, go. My grandfather was a big hunter. It wasn't anything where it was a constant. There was, there was, there was a balance again, but it was definitely a constant exposure. And I moved around a lot as a kid, but the one thing my my folks always made sure I had was lots of land to go play on and explore. So cool. that was always my proving ground. And then right around the age of 15, um, I was at a flea market in Jersey. This <laughs> old survival <laughs> manual, right? Still have it. Um, and I started thumbing through the survival manual and everything I had been doing or experimenting with or trying to create existed in that book. Then all of a sudden that turned into my gospel. And I did that for, you know, many years until, you know, it was time to say, all right, what are we going to do as, as an adult? Well, I gave college a try and that lasted for about two months. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I went to uncle Sam and said, Hey, I like, uh, I like camping. I like fishing. I like hunting. He's like, well, you should join the infantry. And I was like, this is too easy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, Uncle Uncle Sam, he uh, supported that interest by sending me to all sorts of survival schools in Thailand and Malaysia and Indonesia. I got to uh, embed with a lot of indigenous cultures and learn from them. And that just it was just a constant, you know, snowball effect where it was just always building bigger and bigger and bigger. And then eventually, you know, I decided to get out of the Marine Corps and I wanted to take all of these life passions and, and turn them into something that would be able to feed my family and give me lots of adventures and allow me to kind of truly explore who I am as, as a person and ultimately live a little bit more wild than the next person. I like it. I like it a lot. Right on. I appreciate it. Now I never grew up um, with like a pocket knife. Like I, I was doing tree forts, like leaf huts, all like, I love the outdoors making mud pies, but I never was into like whittling. Now is that something you did Barry growing up whittling and then, Donnie, let's lead this into uh, the stuff you do with the stonework, which I really don't understand it. <laughs> no <worries. laughs> Yeah, I mean, for me, it was uh, kind of a rite of passage when you got your first pocket knife. You know, when I, I, I got, I think it was my grandfather's, but given to me by, by my parents, uh, my first little just small pocket knife. And I cut everything I possibly could, including myself, as many <laughs> times as I could um, with that knife. And it was a rite of passage. You were finally trusted with a, a, a pocket knife and a BB gun. And that yeah. was the big deal. And I'd take that BB gun down. I, I grew up in uh, Panama City, Florida, for the most part. We moved around a lot when I was very young, but we finally settled in Panama City when I was around seven, eight. And that's where I grew up. And we lived on a canal on East Bay overlooking Tyndall Air Force Base. And uh, that's kind of Gulf side in the Gulf Coast area. Yeah. And so the BB gun was down at the bay or I was fishing or I was snorkeling. I was constantly down there. You get done with school, you get your homework done and you're immediately outside and you weren't allowed back home until dark for dinner. Go get out of here, come back home at dinner. And that's where I was with my pocket knife or fishing rod or my skim board or any of that kind of stuff causing trouble, but all, all good trouble. Yeah. Good kid trouble. And trying to see, you know, we'd have contests to see who could get our feet the toughest throughout the summer barefoot. 
or one of the worst things you can do is who can get the the darker the worst sunburn which we did i lost that battle um you know or we'd have we create our own um adventures where the salt marsh that split the canal that i lived on to the bay we would make contests and i forget what we called it but who could get across it the first by going through the mud and just getting nasty um and my brother who's seven years older than me six years older than me um really taught me a lot of that too because he's very outdoorsy and unlike myself he he wasn't born with the fear at all of snakes reptiles and that kind of thing so he's out there catching snakes and having a good time and he bring them to me and i'm really relatively fearful of snakes i don't mind them i'm not one of those that goes oh there's a rattlesnake i'm gonna chop its head off but i leave him alone okay he would work at a rattlesnake farm and milk rattlesnakes he didn't care he's fearless when it comes to those things so it was nice having those lessons as well and fishing with my father so yes to go back and not ramble too much pocket knife was a thing getting those rites of passage as a kid was a thing and learning the responsibility of having them was a, a big thing growing up for me awesome now how does that lead to you Dottie? like you start whittling and then you start doing the stone work the foot napping like how does that yeah so my, my journey into flint napping was it was really simple this was like probably 2008 2009 and i got tired of all of the stuff that comes with, you know, one person wanting to go out into the, the to the wilds and, and explore the backpacks, the sleeping bags, the tents, everything. And I took a moment and I said, how did, how did we as, as, a, as human beings, how did we get it done? And um, I did some research. I actually enrolled in a community college class in archeology. span And um, the professor just started talking about stone tools and brought in some examples. And I think it was, that was my, my moment of like, oh my gosh, this is, this is my calling, you know? Um, so, you know, there's probably the only class I got like a perfect scoring because it was like the most interesting class. But um, yeah, I got a hold of that, that professor and uh, said, you know, how do I get my hands on these? She put me in contact with a guy and he made me a set of, of stone tools, kind of similar to like some of these guys right here, just big hand blades. And uh, he made them out of obsidian. I used them till there was nothing left. And then I felt like I had earned the right to start flint napping by using those tools. I understood how they worked different than a, than a pocket knife. I understood how they would make holes, how they would cut wood. And then um, I just started flint napping. I, I started breaking stone, giving myself stitches. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just morphed into this constant pursuit of stone, which is what I call the first skill. If you're looking to get into primitive skills or even survival, you should learn flint napping. It's the old scenario. Like what happens if you have no knife? Well, now you can make one. And that's kind of where my, my, my overall expression and journey into this is saying, all right, I can walk into the woods with absolutely nothing, find the stone, crack the stone, build the tools that I need to, to hunt game, to, to chop down trees and to ultimately thrive. It all starts with, uh, you know, some of this stuff right here, just a raw piece of stone. You break it over your leg, you shape it into any form from drills to, you know, crescents for processing game, things like this. I mean, I've used crescents this size to process out bison up in Montana. Wow. And it's that sort of, you know, journey for me that's been my, my focal point. And the one thing I try to always bring people back to is that, you can you can have a reliance you can have a self-reliance in the wilderness but we still have to be able to create and that's our number one survival skill is creativity so whether we create it from stone or we create it from bone or we create it from wood um these will be the tools that will ultimately allow, allow you to thrive and step in that one thing for me it's it's my drug so to speak <laughs> you make it sound easy but i i got my degree in archaeology and i remember oh, right. doing the flint napping class <laughs> and I really, really enjoyed it. And, and the professor that was teaching us, he had a lot of obsidian with them, which, you know, in Florida isn't the thing you find. We don't have stone like you do up in Colorado. Um, yeah. and, and the stuff we have is pretty soft and porous like limestone. But I remember doing it. You'd lay the leather across your lap and you had a couple of bone tools to get the small chips out. And the what you're doing there, yes, is amazing because it's, it's not easy. Anybody watching this, that stuff is hard, especially right. making it as those uh those little crescent those little skinning knives those you know you you know one false move and that thing's in half and you're starting over yeah i got i have a pile of broken rocks all around me <laughs> it's debutage it's pieces that you know i've snapped right in half as i'm working on them 
And, you know, I always say the stone knows what it, what it wants to be. I'm just there to remove those layers and ultimately that final form will come into shape and, um, you know, it will let me use it for whatever adventures that I have. It's, that's cool. it's a hard skill. That's, that's the thing that really separates a lot of people in the primitive skills and survival and bushcraft world is that this is a skill that you can't, you can't attend one weekend class and walk away confident. You, you did it yourself, Barry. You're like, I remember, I remember the hits, the breaks and the tools. And it was something that requires a lot of time, effort and energy. And I spent years, you know, being able to take, you know, this thick of a stone and then reduce it down to that thinness right there to throw it at a, an elk or to process game with it. It's, it's a story journey for sure. There's something very fascinating too, because when I go back to my grandparents' farm in uh, Western New York, like we'll walk the creek beds, and I remember growing up as a kid, we'd find these cool rocks, look like a shape or a fist or a heart. But once you start looking at like the weird fossils, this cool stuff, there's just something so awesome and arty about it. But it's history, and it's kind of cool that you get to play around in that while making your own history. Yeah, it's. I feel pretty. I feel privileged. I feel. I feel kind of, you know, I'm honoring the ancient ways of, of living. And like I tell a lot of folks, we've used stone longer than we've used steel. If you really think about it, there's stone tools that date back like millions of years. And a lot of them are just simple hand axes. And over time, they've evolved into these ornate, beautiful pieces. So it is, you get to kind of walk through history. And I enjoy it because I could walk out of the bush, find some stone and sit and craft the exact same way somebody did thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. And it just brings me into this kind of full circle saying, okay, you're, you're not as you know important as you think you are. You're as just as simple as anybody else. And this is how you go about thriving in this world. And that's what the ancients did before us. And that's what you're doing right now. So keep doing it. Do you Great think boy. it's your, your duty to continue kind of like that full circle of, your next, what's your next generation of kids that want to learn flip mapping or how to make a fishing line or how to build a fort? Like, do you think it's your duty now to kind of, even if one person follows in your footsteps, you've preserved and kept the history going along? Absolutely. I think, I think it's important that we don't forget these, these ancient ways of living because we might require them sometime in the future. I have no doubt. And it's, it's important. Like with my sons, you know, my, my sons are musicians. They love to cook. They love all their own unique things. And I make sure that whatever they're doing is it's their passions that they're following. But they are very familiar and pretty darn good at, you know, processing game and, and flint napping and doing all these things. But it's, it's something that I want them to be aware of. They don't have to master it. They might, they probably have a better working knowledge than most, but <laughs> it's one of those things. Yeah, we have to keep them going. We have to keep these, these, these methodologies in place. So people can learn from them. They can understand, you know, the full facet of who who we are as a people and who we are as a species. It's stone tools are the way to go. They really are. Now, when you did the show alone, you had to pick what was it ten items to bring with you? Yeah, yeah. Would you have changed those ten items? Do you ever Monday quarterback different actions or reasoning for why you choose a certain tool? No, you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I chose kind of the basic survival items, and I like to think of. Alone is a very unique show because you get 10 problems solved. So if you think about it, you can walk out there with fire, a warming layer like a sleeping bag, hunting tools, a pot. You can walk out there with a lot of things, a lot of issues, survival issues that are already solved for you. Now you have to know how to employ them and keep them going, but it alleviates a little bit of that stress. Now the whole factor in that show is being isolated and being alone. But for me, I mean, I was very confident with... The things that I had and knowing that if they were to break or if I was to lose them, I had the knowledge, skills and abilities to replicate those, whether it was, you know, fire or, you know, warming layers, whatever the case be. That's where for me, it was it was extreme confidence saying, all right, well, if, if this goes awry, I've got X, Y and Z that I can definitely fall back. That's that wilderness self-reliance. Right. Now, Barry, are you uh, what is? Do you watch these shows, Barry? Like, what is it about these shows that kind of gets you enthralled in the into this? Like, there's just the drama. It's you don't really don't have to manufacture. And one of the things I yeah. always question is, okay, naked, afraid, I get it, naked, but like, 
like I is it staged? Like the thing about I love alone, it's just you and a camera, right? Yeah. No, no team, no film guy there with you. It, everything you encounter is real life. Yeah. I I tend to think some of the other shows are very. I don't know if it's staged or it just seems too Hollywood. Yeah. Is that, Good, Barry. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, you're fine. Uh, either way. Um, I agree with that. And I think, you know, th there's enjoyment in watching the the staged ones as well, you know, like Naked and Afraid and stuff, which that one I didn't get too much into because uh, I'd have to stay up till 11 o'clock at night, midnight to watch it because my daughter doesn't need to see it. You know? <laughs> Not yet, anyway. <laughs> Trying to keep the innocence as long as possible. For sure. Um, but, uh, you know, shows like Alone, I enjoy a lot. And you, for me, you know, a lot of people watch these reality shows for the train wreck side of things. Oh, when's this person going to fail? What's going to be the next injury? Who's going to cut their hand? I remember a few, one of the early seasons, season two or something, the, the woman was thriving. She was killing it. And then she really cut herself really bad by a si silly mistake. And she had to get airlifted out. And I was sad for her because she was one of the ones doing the best. She was thriving, but now she's got a catastrophic injury that happened like that. And she can't use her hand anymore. Those things I hate seeing. I like seeing people thrive in those situations, you know, and, and like even the, the Bear Grylls type shows, yes, it's very Hollywood and he's got a massive support team, but certain things you can learn from him. But then you have somebody like Les Stroud, who probably was somewhat a formative factor for the idea of something like Alone, where it's just him and a camera and he's doing some crazy stuff. And I also like seeing, and you don't see it that much. And I know Donnie, you just did something recently in the swamps of Louisiana which yeah. I'm totally curious about and, and your thoughts on how different that is from your lifestyle, Colorado, because um, that's a lot closer to my lifestyle here in Florida, if not even crazier, because Louisiana is just insane. But um, what I, what you rarely ever see on these shows is somebody being dropped off in the Southeastern US. I don't know if it's a insurance situation or what, or it's just because it is so miserable down here that the outside teams don't want any part of it. Um, I always wait for that because it's always okay. We're in Alaska, the last frontier, or we're going to be up in the Arctic Circle, or those kinds, or Canada somewhere. And those are just as hard, if not harder, to survive in. But you never see the hot, sweaty messes as much sometimes. So I, I always enjoy those situations. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the uh, survival shows that are out there, there's always, there's always an objective and kind of a mission. There's there's a deliverable, if you will, that they're looking to provide the audience, whether it's adventure, whether it's a skill or following along on this, on this journey. So there's a lot of reality to them. Um, I, you know, you know, EJ, I know EJ, there's a lot of people that have been on Naked and Afraid as well as Alone, Dual Survival that I know personally, and they're all real. There's, there's just different kind of approaches to it. So we'll take something like Dual Survival where two guys are given an objective. They're given a small kind of resources based off of a survival scenario. So two guys are kayaking and then all of a sudden their boat dips and then they're on the beach somewhere. They're kind of replicating a survival scenario situation for an audience. So, you know, even if we take Bear Grylls, who's, who's a great guy, he's got a wealth of knowledge. I mean, the guy falls out of a, out of a plane, breaks his back and then climbs Mount Everest, you know, like a year and a half later. Yeah. He's there to replicate and show an audience what you do not necessarily i'm out here for 15 days on my own but if you find yourself in this situation these are the knowledge skills and abilities associated with it and this is how you can you know ultimately get yourself to safety because all the shows are a little bit different they all provide kind of a different vantage point and i think it's it's up to the viewer as well as those that are producing it to kind of lay that out in a very kind of clear and kind of organized manner like what are these guys doing this is what they're doing and kind of expectations yeah. Now, the interesting thing about your appearance on Alone, Donnie, is that you had a really bad heart attack the year prior. Yeah. Now, leading up to that, um, were the producers, or were they just like, man, this guy's actually crazy? <laughs> like, I mean, you think, of someone, you think of an athlete that breaks a leg in football or hockey, they're coming back at 85 maybe 70% the next year. And here yeah. you are, yeah, it's a sport, but you're – it, it's no different mentally and physically. So how do you, yeah. I mean, how do you do it? So my, my, after my heart attack, it was my recovery, which is really the, the premise the of book. my, my yeah. first book. Yeah. So that was all about my mental, physical, emotional, and primal recovery, my well being, if you will. And I knew I was healthy prior to my heart attack and I knew I was going to be healthy afterwards. This was just a new factor I had to consider in a lot of my decision-making. So 
I didn't really worry about it. I didn't worry about if it was to happen again. And to be honest with you, this is probably going to be one of the alone was the safest situation I could ever put myself in because there's an entire medical crew, you know, yeah, there's some miles away, but I was going to be okay no matter what. Even if, you know, I snapped a femur or I got attacked by a bear, as long as I could hit that button and say, come help me, I'd be okay. But yeah, I, I didn't really, and I still don't live by the fear of having another heart attack. I accept that it might be the thing that takes me out one day. But knowing that, knowing that is a, a, a probability, I think it just really opens my life up to say, all right, well, if we know that's going to happen, and that's a guarantee for everyone, we all die at some point, maybe I have a little bit more clarity on how, what are you going to hold back for? Just keep going, keep living. Any challenges that come your way, step up and do them to the best of your abilities. Otherwise, you just wither away and die in the corner. I refuse to do that. I mean, for the example of my two sons, if anything, they can see their dad have this major, you know, life event at a very young age and then overcome it and just keep moving. And, you know, aside from February 3rd, which is the day it happened, that's the only really day that I, I take a moment and say, huh, you know, four years ago or three years ago, you were laid up in a hospital bed. And then three months later, you were sleeping naked in a cave next to a fire. It's a good life, you know. <laughs> you got to do it, you know. <laughs> Now, you also have your dog out there recently, Finn, right? Yeah. So when Finn's out there with you, does he act differently if he's out there versus back at home inside a regular house? Like, how does that affect his psyche himself? Yeah, so Finn is very much a wild, wild dog. I picked him up in Aurora. He was eating roadkill, so I respect that because I'm a big roadkill guy myself. But I was like, you know, this this this, this character looks like uh, he could be with me, so – I adopted him. I brought him right out in the mountains and we just, we just bonded. He's, he's jumped in front of moose. I've been walking and a moose comes out and he's jumped in front and growled it out. Um, he flushes squirrels and rabbits and all sorts of stuff, but he's very much like me when, when we have to kind of fall back to, you know, the place that I keep when I have my kids, um, he kind of gets a little like, all right, when are we going back out there? We're, we're always out there, but He's, he's very much feeds off my energy. When he sees me grabbing certain things, his ears kind of perk up and he knows we're getting ready to head out. Or if I grab my bow, he sleeps on a mule deer hide. So if I roll up his mule deer hide, he's like, oh, we're out the door. And tail starts wagging. <laughs> he's happy as anything. You know, it's just like us, though. You know, we see something. We're like, oh, it's about to happen. Let's go. And same exact way. So, Barry, question for you here. Say you and I are going on a hike, which we did, I think, up in uh, Penticton, uh, uh, Canada, this past yeah. tour or whatever. Yeah. What are some tools that you would bring with you that you would have to be, like, necessity? Like, what are some stuff you have to put in your backpack, you think? For, like, a day hike? Something like yeah, we so, did? So, or... so, like we did. I mean, we had cell phones, Wi-Fi reception. But, I mean, it was yeah. a great hike, but any one of us could have rolled an ankle and the uber ride up there would could it was no different than the taliban so no <laughs> the uber ride was intense <laughs> i have not been a car sick in a very long time um <laughs> for me a pocket knife is essential with me at all times uh a bandana or two you can use those for just about anything uh some source of fire which we had we had sanjay with us so that was helpful he's always got a lighter um you know, uh, so fire's good. And, you know, with that situation, an emergency device was the cell phone where there's plenty of cell signals. So if stuff really hits the fan, you have 911 available and it's a national park. I think it gets a lot deeper, a lot quicker if one, you're going to go out alone and you don't have buddies with you, or two, you're going someplace that's quite a bit more remote. Then you start really thinking about having a pack or a day pack that has a lot more survival things, maybe a space blanket for quick warmth, those kinds of things, uh, some, uh, one of the water straws or some way that you can get clean water. Because if you do get lost, anybody that has been lost, you realize how scared it is, how quickly you can be scared. And I, I've been lost and it's a horrible, weird situation at first till you kind of figure out, okay, calm down, let's figure out what we're gonna do. Um, I think having a small day pack like that, you know, for us on the road, uh, you know, I had my camera case and my pockets full of stuff, but if it were more of a, a bigger hike or going a little bit more wilderness, Donnie, I think you'd agree. You need to be a little more uh, regimented on what you're going to pack. I do find it weird, though, that, hey, we're going to go up there. We'll find this place. We got cell phone. Like, what if we get up there and there's no reception? So what if one of us rolls our ankle? It's just stuff like that where you kind of like, I trust that we do the right thing. We figure it out. Like, we know where the bottom is because we can see cars. But right. – 
we still have to go a quarter mile downhill in some parts that are rocky. Like, what happens if one of us rolls reactable? How are we buddy carrying this person down? Right. And so my question I, to you, Dottie, is how do you kind of – do you find you come across a lot of people who take your classes that have those same type of, oh, I'm just going for a hike and don't really think about stuff like that as simple as a rolled ankle? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I run a lot of traditional survival classes, and one of the premises of the classes is pack what you would for a day hike, and that's all we're going to use for the next three days. And I say three days, 72 hours, because that's kind of the normal response time for a search and rescue team. Um, and, you know, people are kind of a little bit, a little weary at first, but the whole point is to replicate that exact scenario. So the three of us are out hiking, I roll my ankle, we can use what's in my pack, whether it's, you know, and I always, I always carry four things with me, a blade, a blanket, a bottle, this bottle right here, so I can boil water in it. And then some aspect of a burn or a fire. Those four things are the four hardest things to replicate out in the bush. So I, I, I mitigate some of that by taking those. And that's what I try to stress to a lot of the people that I bring out in the bushes. If you can have some basic things that enable you to create fire, which is also a signal, which is also warmth, which is also protection, um, and then using your blanket and the means of boiling water, you're, you're going to extend that 72-hour window a great deal. So yeah, I bring people out. I say, pack what you're going to bring for a day hike. And someone will bring a granola bar and a pair of socks. And then by one o'clock <laughs> morning, they're like, I should have used four leaves to keep me warm, you know, but that's, that's how you learn though. That's genuinely yeah. how you learn is by really testing yourself and exposing yourself to those, those situations. And the fortunate thing is there's someone there like me that in the event of an emergency, in that scenario that we're replicating, I'll pull out a space blanket and say, all right, now we're getting to a critical point of a failure. I need you to warm up. We'll create some thermal mass and we'll get people warmed up. Or instead of, you know, boiling out water bottles, we have a water filtration system. They don't know I have those, but that's at that, that critical failure point. Now, now go ahead, Barry. I was just going to say, do you have, I mean, you spend a lot of times alone out there. Is there something, something that is kind of a guilty pleasure thing that you do out there, whether it's a humming a specific tune or, you know, cause you're making, you, you have a craft, you're making uh, instruments out of, out of stone and stuff, but is there something else that you do? You're like, yeah, you know, I got to have this with me and it's a, a mouth harp or for me, I carry a slingshot and I target practice with a really small slingshot cause that's fun. Yeah. Do you have good... something like that. Um, so I don't think I have that one thing. One habit that I do is I cash. So in some of the caves that I have, um, they're around specific springs or like great areas for fishing. So I'll cache things out there, which ultimately allows me to kind of pull, pull back on some of the things I might bring. So if I know one of my main caves has everything from an extra pair of shorts to countless stone tools, a little burn bowl, and a couple of things that if I'm like, you know what, I'm kind of feeling down. I know I can make it to that cave. I have resources on hand. So I guess kind of using that caching mentality is is um, my approach. One thing I always will carry with me is you know some some manner of, of a stone hand blade. This right here is the one thing that I aim for every student to be able to create because you can use this as a blade. You can score around trees. You can knock trees down. You can pop flakes off and make you know little micro knives like this that are razor sharp. This one thing can give you so many opportunities. So if there was that one personal crutch item, it'd be, it'd be a stone blade. Because I, I don't go out with a knife every single time. That, that's part of the journey is to say, what can I use? What can I create? But that mm -hmm. definitely comes with some, some time and practice. So, sure. This uh, past year, one of the things I spent more time with the garden doing stuff, and I'm really into like blueberries and stuff. Well, I ordered and planted and grew raspberries, blackberries, elderberries, all these crazy different things. And I really started learning about with different leaves, what's poisonous versus like all that stuff. So when you're out there, what are some things where if you come across berries and you are alone, and is it better to not eat them? Or like how do you, like what do you, what do you do? What's your advice for that? Yeah. So when it comes to any wild edible, I would like to say that they're not going to kill you directly. What they're going to do is they're going to cause some sort of irritation, a rise in blood pressure, some GI issues, maybe some some diarrhea or even some vomiting, You're, you will have a negative effect. So what you don't do is start consuming mass quantities of them. You kind of eat one or two if you're unfamiliar with it and it let your body kind of see how it responds. But that really comes into, you know, just the person who has no idea about any sort of edible plants. 
if you're not familiar with it, I would just steer clear of it. If you're working on that, um, steel guys. I mean, I forced myself for a year. I lived as a vegan for a couple of years. It started with a dare. I'm normal <laughs> now, but you but, won't live in a cave for ten years. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so one of my buddies very dared me to become a vegan. I went vegan, but the best part about it was I removed an entire food option off of my plate. So it forced me to learn countless plants and then it also forced me to re remember these plants in various locations and the one thing that's overlooked by a lot of people is that plants have a full life cycle all all four seasons so even though things bloom in springtime and they really come to full you know full source uh, out of the summer well they still have roots in the winter they still have different capabilities and limitations at all four seasons so when i try to teach people about certain plants like mullen or yarrow or even some of the berries, like, you know, something like rose hips, those things exist in all four seasons. They still can be a resource. So just because it's not spring or summer or even moving into fall when the mushrooms are out, um, focus on those plants, learn those plants, and get out there with the field guide. And this is the easiest way. Find, you know, the, the Peterson field guide, walk out there and say, this is what I believe this is. You look at those factors, and then you start experimenting with it piece by piece. But like what you're doing, growing berries and stuff, that's – that's the best way to do it. Start growing them in your backyard so you know what you're putting in the ground, what's coming out of the ground. You can consume them. And then when you find them out in the bush, you're like, I know exactly what that is. I've grown it. I've tasted it. I've harvested it. I've done all this full life cycle to it. I know 100% that's what that is. So there's a small creek up by, by my house. And like, so I guess my question is, how do you know, could you drink from that? Could I drink from that? Or if it's not running or if it's stagnant, like how, what, what's stagnant water? Yeah, so stagnant water is water that's just sitting in place. Think of like a, like, like a, a rain puddle. Yeah, like a rain puddle. I would drink from a rain puddle. I mean, if it was on a road, no. But if I'm out in the middle of somewhere and there's a puddle, that might, that's called the direct water consumption. So we think direct water, fog, rain, snow, springs, puddles things that we can consume directly that aren't going to harm us. When we think of any sort of water in the environment that's that's running or stagnant, we just have to think in our mind like Gerardia, Cryptosporidium, you can get hepatitis, all sorts of waterborne pathogens, and you just have to err on the side of caution. But when it comes to water, and if I'm hemmed up and I have no other option and I can't boil it or find a means to even try to remove some of the particulates out there, my face is in it and I'm drinking it. I'd rather get sick and stay hydrated. Yes, I might be losing a lot of fluids in that process, but I can also retain some and hope that somebody will come in and save me if, if I'm in that extreme, extreme situation. But in your, you know, in your case, I would definitely uh, boil that water. And so people get, you know, kind of confused between like purifying and filtration. So, okay. like, yeah. so like when you think of like filtering water, what you're doing is really removing the particulates, the, the grasses and the dirts and things like that. When you purify it, you're killing any waterborne pathogen that could exist in it. And typically, boiling is one of the best means if you don't have, you know, the, the UV kind of um, strobes or you don't have a water filtration system. I teach people to use a single wall, you know, water bottle like this, collect up the water, start boiling it, and water boils at 212 degrees. Our visual of that is rapid steam and bubbles. So we know it's clean. All, all things really start dying around 160, 165. So you're just really killing everything in that water. Let it cool and you got a good drink. But, you know, it still might taste a little funky. It might taste with a little bit of like um, swampy, depending on where you're pulling it out from. But ultimately, you know, it's going to keep you hydrated. Now, I do have to ask you this. And one of my favorite guilty pleasure movies is the movie Waterworld. When he drinks <laughs> his own urine to that filtration. Yeah. <laughs> Now, is you can can you drink your own urine? I guess is the question. Um, I think there's a lot of debate on that. I wouldn't. I would say if if I can't find a means of consuming water or finding water, I I'm not very good at what I do. But there are those extreme situations. Uh, if I was going to pee, I would probably pee on something and try to keep myself cool with it. Um, if I if I'm moving through an area and I have a container of some sort, I might pee in that container. Maybe. Later on down the road, finding finding a way of fil uh, filtering it out and purifying it, but I've never I've never drinking my own pee. Uh, I don't plan on it. <laughs> I mean, no. I've seen so, once where they they've made stills and you can distill the water out of your own pee, but I'm sure it still tastes and smells like pee. So yeah. you can survive, but no thanks. Yeah, um, now, there's, 
there's plenty of water in Florida. I'm, I'm going to survive. <laughs> now, Barry, you mentioned Louisiana, and I'm glad you brought it up because I'm always fascinated by it. You have the, the party craziness of Bourbon Street, the history of everything else, but out in the wild, it's like hell on earth. And like every time yeah. I've read stories of people get lost or uh, you see police reports of like the stuff they come across, and what about Louisiana, those swamps, is like what is it about that that draws you in? You think? Uh, it's mysterious. It's you know, okay, you have New Orleans. That's like saying uh, New York City is all of New York. They're, they're right. completely different things. Um, and, and I do love New Orleans. It's my favorite city on in the planet. But um, those swamps have a crazy magical thing, and the people that have thrived there, you know, the the old the Creole population, things like that, they've turned it into a home but it is extremely hard to access. So the people could hide things there that, you know, you had pirates going through there. Um, the, once you get past that and you get past the scariness of it, and I, I'll be honest, I'm scared to death of those swamps sometimes because everything there wants to kill you or eat you or hurt you, everything. Um, I, you just, you never know. I'm not swimming in that water unless I absolutely have to, and, and you might have to twist my arm to do it. But you get past that and you realize that it's all a food source. There's so much food there, so much food, but, but you can eat a gator, you can eat a snake. There's fish galore. There's plenty of vegetation. You can eat it, you know what you're doing. You're not gonna starve there if you get over some of those fears, but that's coming from a guy who knows that. Donnie's actually lived that. So it's, uh, you know, it, they're scary to me, but food wise, I think you, you would attest that it's really, quite easy in some cases to get food there. I, I would say the, the swamp was, was full of opportunities. The, the downside for me going into, and this is for uh, a TV kind of spinoff of Alone called Alone the Beast, where they put us in a swamp for 30 days with no tools, zero tools, and they gave us one dead beast. And they gave um, my group a hog. There was three guys. And um, for me, I was, I felt very comfortable there. There was a lot of unfamiliar sort of, you know, things I had to learn, but that hog not only gave us immediate resources as far as food, but also gave me tons of tools. It gave me sure. bones and leg bones and the, the, the cutters on that bad boy were just razor sharp. So I knew the tools that I needed to chop down trees <clears throat> to process everything and anything was going to come from that hog. More importantly, as you know, you walk the land and you discover it, we found shells, um, we found clams, we found skulls, we found different things that we could use. But the swamp afforded many things to eat from snakes to crayfish to fish. Every, I mean, pretty much everything Barry was saying was an opportunity uh, for us. On that show, I mean, I made an atlatl, threw my atlatl at a possum, hit the possum, the possum kind of ran off and I jumped over some briars, loved it to death with a, with a homemade throwing stick. And then we had possum for dinner one night. Uh, we made traps to catch um, all sorts of crayfish. There was mushrooms, oyster mushrooms growing on every oak tree that was out there. Pulled those bad boys off, smoked them over a fire, and then we preserved our mushrooms for periods. There was just there was plenty of things. But the thing is, the swamp will kill you quick as anything through whether it's the the annoyance of mosquitoes, a spider bite, uh, the gators, the snakes, snapping turtles, and you know I'm definitely one down and walk through a swampy area and just I'm more worried about the snapping turtles biting than than the I have that mentality I guess maybe like well if it's a gator maybe I could fight it off that's probably <laughs> <laughs> but it's the mentality that. I'll, I'll be behind you <laughs> yeah exactly you clear the path so yeah the swamp was a beautiful place and you know after a while some one of the simplest things um that we were struggling with was we, we made one fire and we kept the same fire going for 30 days. And the one thing that kept happening is our fire kept getting really low and it kept dying out really, really quickly. So we're sitting out there and we're trying to battle like, why is this going out? Well, we're in a swamp. The water table is extremely high. And as we build that fire, it dries out the ground. And as the fire naturally decreases its flame and its heat, that that vac there's a vacuum effect and it sucks all that water back up and it starts to put your fire out so we struggled with this for probably 15 days and then we started moving the fires around and we noticed that there'd be a dry spot and then 15 minutes later it'd be wet so we started building clay tablets and building our fire on top of the clay tablet so the water couldn't get through the clay 
and our fire burned bright as anything. But it's that's that pattern of life. That's that understanding of that natural world that you have to really just be part of and just remove everything you think you know and be like, all right, this is where we're at. Let's live. So, so I have a scenario for you both here. Now, this isn't a survival scenario. This isn't life or death. This is you're camping with your kids, your family, whatever, and it's primitive cooking. Uh, say you have wild boar you got to cook. What natural seasonings are you putting on that to make that more presentable? Yeah. Um, well, for me, I would use a lot of sorrels. Uh, now, sor what are those? Sorrel is a, it's an oxaliate, which is a very citrus tasting plant. Okay. It tastes like lemons. It tastes like limes. And there's probably over 400 different species of sorrel. But um, I would collect a lot of sorrel and I'd mash it up into the meat. Um, I would make even, you know, dry it out and use it as a seasoning over the top. But sorrel is a really great thing that will take a very gamey meat and give it a little bit of, you know, pizzazz, if you will. Um, sorrel's you you can find it pretty much anywhere that you come across uh, water or just moist areas. So that's that's a great one. Um, as well as watercress. Watercress has a little peppery flavor. So even if you're eating gamey meat and then you follow it up with some watercress, you'll get a good little bounce. Because you got to remember, not all seasoning of meats has to be the traditional seasoning. It's eating one, then following with another, and you can get a good effect. But um, those are definitely good. And then uh, I think maybe depending at you know depending where you're at so you're thinking like wild boar but like if let's say we're down in texas there's tons of hogs down there um any of your 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 chanterelles is a style of mushroom that has a nice little refreshing taste that would work well with it um yeah i mean i personally i like i like wild hog the way it is you know <laughs> so, right I, I was thinking uh, you you took it a whole nother level than I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, making sure I had the right wood, like a good piece of hickory or something Absolutely. to get that flavor, you know, Southern barbecue style, some some hickory or oak or that kind of thing. Or if you're in Texas, mesquite and letting that do the, the flavoring. And then, you know, here in Florida, you could even boil some salt water, cool it off and then brine it in that salt water. And there comes your salt and then you can have the salt and then smoke it over fire kind of deal. Barry, we're going to go camping. We're going to okay, go. Let's go. <laughs> I mean, we're gonna go the funny thing about Barry is that he, yeah, he's a drummer in a great, like, famous band, but he, he has all this other stuff where you're kind of like, this guy is like, he's like a Renaissance <laughs> man, like the body of like this Viking, like, it's very, it's Viking very fascinating. Hobbit, <laughs> but uh, it's just great, and it's it's, and I, I'm so grateful for you guys to be on here, and I just, uh, again, I want to thank you guys and. Uh, mm -hmm. This, 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 these type of talks are, I think, necessary, especially in today's day and age, and it's uh, it's been awesome. I think yeah. it's cool to have a cross-pollination cross, uh, of many different walks of life, too. I mean, John, your background coming from, you know, Secret Service into the private security industry, into the rock and roll security industry, and then that side of you, um, and getting to know you through that, because you came in as our security guard, and we, we fastly bonded through there. And then, obviously, Donnie, you have your military past, but then this whole primitive skill life. Uh, and trying to pass it on off with your kids. I, I think it's really neat when you can have these conversations of people that come from maybe some similar walks of life, but have a whole different path that leads back to the same area again. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think diversity of life is really, you know, you, you have it in the macro, but once we come down to the micro, it's all those same sort of things. It's love of your family, keeping them safe, keeping them warm, as well as doing all that to you. I think that's the equalizer in everybody is we all look for those things and when we're out in the bush, you know, um, some, some folks have the ability to do a little bit more and some folks are still trying to kind of relearn that, but yeah, yeah a great opportunity. Absolutely. Well, John and I are going to have to come to your class. Um, I, I, I was actually born in Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy. So I'd like to visit it on a whole nother level. Right on. Yeah. I, yeah. I have a couple classes coming. Uh, they're taking place down the Chihuahua desert in Texas. So it's three, uh, three workshops, just primitive skills. We're going to, you know, make gourd water bottles and kind of walk the land, yes. talk about some medicinal plants. We're going to probably make some sandals and build atlatls and just uh, get some good folks out, kind of away some of the, the, the chaos that's going on in their lives and just live a little bit more water. It's a good time. See, I would love to do that, but I'd want to bring my camera because I just, yeah. and I just love the idea of just like capturing those moments, right? 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just it just blows my mind. Like you posted a picture of you or some whoever took the picture of you and your dog drinking from this water. <laughs> it, but it was just like just a man and his dog out in the wild, and it's the most like coolest thing. So it's just awesome. I appreciate it. Yeah. It's uh it's 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 a way, it's not necessarily the way, but it's it's a way that I that I've chosen, I found success with. And uh, you know, more importantly, it's really just to inspire folks and and to build and kind of re rewild them, so to speak, to say, it's okay. You're you're gonna be all right when we go out there and, and you're gonna be fed well. The forest has plenty of food, it's gonna keep us warm, it's gonna keep us hydrated. We will come across some some adversity at times, but we'll come together as a tribe and We'll overcome it and we'll get the job done. Love it. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks, John.